The sermon text for today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1788. Listen as I read God's word. Thanks for their gifts. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. All of our kiddos, age three through second grade, can head right back there with Miss Michaela right now. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And uh, let me just say that I'm so thankful to be a part of a church family that not only lets me but celebrates me taking uh, something of a mini sabbatical. I know that there are pastors out there that have to literally beg their churches and try and convince them. Uh, that they should have something like this. And so uh, the fact that you all uh, want me to have this and want me to be a healthy person and not just wring me dry for everything I can do, uh, I'm very thankful for that. So uh, looking forward to that time. Looking forward to being here with you for one more Sunday, next Sunday, and then I will be out of commission. Uh, I did purchase a burner phone, by the way. So I'm turning off my regular phone. I have a new phone number for the month of July. So if you call my cell phone, I won't answer or get your message until August, so don't waste your time. Uh, you can contact Pastor Matt if you have any questions or concerns or complaints or anything like that. You can always just direct those right towards Matt while I'm gone. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to look at this passage here together in the book of Philippians. God, we are grateful for you revealing yourself to us in the Bible. We're so thankful, Lord, for this passage in particular and the really powerful teaching that's here on the subject of contentment. Lord, we ask that as we look at this passage, that as we try and understand it, as we sort of swim in it for a while here today, that you would enable us to be people who are characterized by contentment. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be satisfied, to have a heart-level satisfaction, a heart-level contentment in you, Jesus. Help us as we look at this passage. We ask that uh, you, Holy Spirit, even right now in this moment, would come and be near to us, be with us in a special way. Illuminate this passage. Would you help us all here understand this passage? Help us to see Jesus clearly and help us to leave your changed people. We ask it in his name and all God's people said. 
In life, we all experience disappointment. Disappointment comes in all different shapes and all different sizes. Some of the disappointments that we experience are sort of minor things that would be considered maybe more like inconveniences. So there's maybe something that you were going to do outside, an outdoor activity, uh, yard projects, or going to the park with your kids, or going for a bike ride, or something like this, and then the weather turned out to be rainy. And you think, you know, I've only got one Saturday each week, and uh, that Saturday is now gone, and it's a disappointment that I was hoping to do this one thing, and I wasn't able to do it. It's disappointing when uh, our plans get changed at the last minute. When something that we had looked forward to, those plans get changed or those plans get canceled. And we think, you know, I was really looking forward to being with those people. I was looking forward to doing whatever that thing was. And now it's canceled or it's rescheduled. And that's disappointing to experience that. Uh, Minnesota sports fans know a whole lot about the subject of disappointment. Unless you are a Minnesota Lynx fan, you are well familiar with the disappointment of, uh, you can't even say coming this close every year because it's not. <laughs> but we know what it's like, uh, whether it's, you know, you're a Minnesota sports fan or some other sports, uh, you, you know, you hit your wagon, so to speak, with a team and you open yourself up to the disappointment of, man, I've invested myself in them. I've spent money on jerseys or hats or whatever it is, and then they don't make it to the end, and it's disappointing because only one team can make it there, and it's very unlikely that your team is gonna make it. So there's all these little things that can be uh, disappointments in life. But then there's also things that are significant, uh, big life disappointments. Uh, you may be thinking to yourself, you know, I thought I would be married by now at this point in my life. I thought I would at least have some sort of prospect. I thought I would at least be dating. I thought I would have been much closer than I am right now because I got nothing. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, uh, the career that I find myself in is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. Maybe I went into a, uh, a career field or went into a specific vocation and you realize, oh, this is maybe not all it's cracked up to be. Or turns out that when I do this for a living, when I do this full time, uh, this isn't as satisfying for me. This isn't as fulfilling for me as I thought it might be. This turns out not to be maybe the best use of my gifting. And so it can feel like some, something of a drudgery to just do it over and over and over again. Maybe you feel trapped. Like, I don't have any other real options. I, I need this income, and so I'm sort of stuck doing this job that I don't particularly enjoy that's not really the best use of my gifts, and that's just my lot in life. And that's a huge disappointment to carry with you. Your disappointment may be from uh, the accumulation of the effects of old age and your body doesn't work the way that it used to. Your body doesn't work the way that you want it to. And there's all these effects that come in with old age and that's a weight of disappointment. It could also be something like in your relationships. You look at the relationships you have maybe with your children, maybe with your parents, maybe with your siblings, and there's uh, maybe relational conflict or there's sort of brokenness or damage that's in those relationships. And it's very disappointing. Maybe you look at your marriage and you say, this is not what I thought marriage was going to be like when I stood there and said, I do. If I would have known this is what it was going to be like, I may have saved myself the hassle. It may be that you find yourself with a standard of living. You say, you know, I thought I would be making more money in my life at this point. I thought that I would have been able to, you know, get up the career ladder in some ways and be able to, you know, do more things, go more places than I am but I find myself in sort of a, you know, not very well-paying job that maybe you feel trapped in, and it's like, okay, that's a disappointing thing. 
It could just be the accumulation of things where we say, you know, I just can't seem to catch a break. Maybe it's financial. I just can't seem to catch a break. There's also the ongoing accumulation of things where there's one more close friend that moves away. Or there is chronic or ongoing health problems or challenges that you face. It may be that there is a string of broken promises from a person that you trust or you trusted. And the accumulation of those things is a significant, huge disappointment. We all experience disappointment. And I think that every disappointment is like a seed that is planted that has the potential to bear the fruit of discontentment. Disappointment and discontentment are two different things, but they're very closely related. Disappointment is the sadness over, this is what I thought my life was going to be like, and it didn't turn out to be that way. And there's a kind of sadness, even a kind of grief that we have to experience and walk through. And that's actually, that's even a good thing for us to experience and to feel that. Disappointment is seeing that, is feeling sadness over, this isn't the way that I envisioned my life. The discontentment is when that disappointment festers and it grows and it turns into a kind of heart-level restlessness. It turns into a heart-level soul dissatisfaction with the life that I currently have. And it may even turn into a kind of heart-level resentment over the life and the circumstances that I find myself in. You know, nobody wants to, nobody aspires to be discontent. Nobody wakes up and says, you know, today I want to be a more discontent person than I was yesterday. You know, those areas in our lives where we experience discontentment, those are pretty miserable. Those are painful. Nobody wants to grow up and be a discontent person. Nobody wants to be sort of the crotchety old, you know, cantankerous, you know, curmudgeon type person. Nobody wants that. In fact, most of the time we wake up one day and find ourselves saying, how did I ever end up in this place? How did I get here? And more importantly, how do I find contentment? To put a little bit of a definition on the word contentment, it's sort of just the opposite of discontentment. So if the discontentment is a soul-level restlessness and dissatisfaction, contentment is a heart-level, soul-permeating kind of satisfaction, no matter what our circumstances are. And today, as we look at this passage in Philippians, we're going to be talking about the subject of contentment. And as we look at our passage, the first thing that we see here today is we see something of the nature of true contentment. We can look at what Paul says here and see something of what is true contentment actually like? And he tells us a few different things. We can learn about contentment from this passage that it can be had in all circumstances. True contentment can be had in any and every and all kinds of circumstances. Listen to what he says in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So as we come to this part of the book of Philippians, we see that in these closing sort of remarks that Paul makes here, he's expressing his deep gratitude for a financial gift that the church in Philippi sent to him. They knew that he was under house arrest. 
They knew that he was imprisoned and that he had these needs and they sent a generous financial gift to him in order to meet those needs. And so, you know, he addresses lots of other things in this letter, but the primary thing that sort of spurred him to write this letter in the first place was that he received this financial gift and he wanted to say thank you. He wanted to express his thankfulness. And so he says to them, I'm so grateful that you renewed your concern for me, that you had opportunity to express your concern for me by sending this generous financial gift. But then in verse 11, he wants to be very clear. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So I think in this whole sort of section here, what Paul is doing is he's, he's kind of threading the needle a little bit. Okay? So he's writing to them, and he's trying to avoid giving the impression that he's asking for more money. He says, I'm so thankful that you had the opportunity to express your concern by giving that financial gift. Now, I'm not saying this because I want you to send me more money. So he's trying to avoid looking like he's asking them for more money. And he's also, I think, trying to say to them, I don't need your money without sounding ungrateful. Okay? Look at what he says. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So whether you send me more money in the future or not, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm content with what I have. If you would have never sent me that money in the first place, I would be content with what I have. So he's saying all of this, and you can see the sort of the, the way that this, uh, the scope of the language he uses. He says, I have learned to be content in any and every kind of situation. So just notice the amount of language that's used in this passage to talk about just the totality of our human experience. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Whatever is a very broad word, meaning whatever. <laughs> whatever circumstances come my way. I know what it is to be in need. That's a word that literally means uh, to be humbled, to be in humble circumstances, lowly circumstances. And I know what it's like to have plenty, to have more than I know what to do with. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed, whether I have good food and good drink as much as I want, whenever I want it, or whether I am hungry, whether I'm feeling the physical pangs of hunger in my stomach because I don't have food, I don't necessarily know where my next meal is going to come from, and I'm hungry. Whether living in plenty or living in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So you see the totality of whatever the circumstance, in every, in every situation, I can be content. And this is the point that Paul is making here, is that there are no circumstances in which true contentment cannot be had. Okay, there are no circumstances you could experience where if, if you were a follower of Jesus, where contentment is not an option for you, where contentment is not able to be had. No, what he tells us here is that true contentment can be had in all circumstances. And the second aspect of this, the second sort of thing we see here about the nature of true contentment is that it's available to everyone in Christ. So it's available in every kind of situation, and it's available to every single person who is in Christ. In verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, the word there that's translated, uh, learned the secret, this is a very specific word that was used in the first century to refer to initiation into a mystery cult. 
there were these sort of mystery cult religions where there was this secret knowledge you had to have. There was this uh, secret, this sort of insider track where if you, if you knew the secret, you were on the inside and everybody else was on the outside or at the very best at the fringes. And so he uses this word that was well known in the ancient world to talk about initiation into these sort of mystery cults to describe him learning contentment. I've learned the secret of this. And I think it's, it's actually kind of funny. I think it's supposed to be kind of a poke in the eye to these mystery cults where he's like, guys, there's, there's really no secret to learning contentment, <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe a better way to say it is that contentment, this whole thing, this is an open secret, right? Because he tells them, I've learned the secret, and then he goes on to tell them what it is. Well, Paul, it's not a secret if he just told us what it is. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So he's writing to these believers who are facing a variety of different circumstances, and he says, I've learned the secret, I know what it is to experience contentment and he's writing them, telling them that Christ is the source of true contentment and in doing so, he's telling them, you know that you can experience this too. He's, he's not saying, you know, as, as, as an apostle, I've got this special insider track to being a person who can experience contentment. Whereas the rest of y'all, good luck. No, he's, he doesn't say this is for some elite special class of person. No, he says, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can experience the same exact kind of contentment I've experienced. In any and every circumstance, contentment is available to everyone who is in Christ. So that's what we learn about the nature of true contentment. It can be had in all circumstances, and it's available to everyone in Christ. So that's the nature of contentment. The next thing that we can observe here is the source of true contentment. Where does contentment come from? How do we get it? That's, of course, the million-dollar question. Again, Paul tells us in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Looking to Christ as the source of contentment, this was countercultural in the first century. The word that Paul uses here uh, for contentment is a word that was used in Stoic philosophy to describe a person who was, in in Stoic philosophy, contentment was one of the highest virtues. And a virtuous person who is a person who is content, what that meant uh, was that you were unaffected by your circumstances. What happened in your life around you, the circumstances, whether they're good, whether they're bad, uh, you were not affected by those circumstances. You were content. And the way that the Stoic philosophy The way that it went about finding or achieving contentment was saying, okay, here's all these things that could affect you. What you do is you detach yourself from them. You don't let them affect you. You you, you detach yourself from them. So these people who were content were also described as emotionless, as wooden. They were described as sort of uh, unable to be affected by anything. And so they had this contentment that was based in based entirely in unattaching themselves, detaching themselves from the world around them. And the contentment didn't come from their circumstances, it came from within. The person who was content in Stoic philosophy was someone who did not find contentment in their circumstances. They looked deep within themselves and their satisfaction came from within. And to them, Paul writes this letter and uses this word contentment 
that's this widely known virtue in the philosophy of the day and says true contentment does not come from looking deep within yourself. True contentment comes from looking outside of yourself to Christ. And this is, I don't know if you've noticed this, what I just described in this Stoic philosophy is what we are experiencing in modern culture is just a repackaging of that same old Stoic philosophy but in a modern world. And in fact, I think it's been ratcheted up a level or two. This is the message that we in our modern context hear continually, especially those in the younger generation, that in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied, in order to be content, you need to look deep within inside of yourselves. You need to find out who you truly are on the inside and you need to live out that truth and you need to be disassociated. You need to not let the opinions or the thoughts of other people affect you, but you need to be satisfied and content within yourself. This is just stoic philosophy that is repackaged for a modern world and it's a crushing weight on the young people in our country especially because we were never designed to be people who would find our identity solely in myself and what I can muster up within me. We were never designed to experience contentment from looking deep within ourselves. And so to us, Paul says the same exact countercultural message. And he says, true contentment is not found by looking deep within yourself and finding out who you truly are and being happy with yourself and not caring what other people think about you. True contentment is found when you look not deep within yourself, but when you look outside of yourself to Christ. And this is, this is how everyone in Christ can have contentment. This is why everyone who has given their trust to Jesus, who has given their allegiance to Jesus, this is why everyone who has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit can experience a life of contentment. Because our contentment is found in Christ, not in our circumstances, not in ourselves. And friends, the reality is, we know this, and especially those of you who have been alive a long time, you know this. Your circumstances can and will change all the time. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but in different seasons of life, whether you are a young person in you know, middle school, high school, whether you are a college student, whether you are a single person, whether you are married, whether you have little kids, whether your kids are grown, whether you're in retirement, whatever season you find yourself in, just wait a little bit and it'll change. Our circumstances are constantly evolving and changing for better or for worse. And if we look to those circumstances as the source of our contentment, that's a very shaky ground on which to find contentment. Because wait 10 minutes and something could change and your contentment is now gone. When the market takes a dip, your contentment is gone. When whatever it is, fill in the blank, whenever this thing changes, your contentment might go out the window with it. Our contentment is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in ourselves. It's found in Jesus. And while everything in our lives is continually and will continue to change, Jesus does not and will not change. And so we can have contentment in the midst of whatever circumstances we walk through because Jesus is the constant. He is the unchanging variable in all of this. And so we can have a kind of contentment. We can have a heart-level satisfaction in Christ because even in the midst of whatever circumstances, whether good or bad, whether with a lot, whether with a little, 
in whatever we face, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's with us, he is constant, and he's the source of our satisfaction. He's the source of our contentment. And so our contentment cannot be changed by the circumstances that we experience. And this is why every single person who is a follower of Jesus can be content. Easier said than done, right? What do we do to experience contentment? What are some things maybe that we can practice even this week to grow in an experience of contentment? What do we do? We name our disappointments. We name the things that are disappointments to us. Because remember, disappointment is like a seed that has the potential to bear the fruit of discontentment. And so I don't know what that area of disappointment is for you today, whether it's related to your marriage or your family or your vocation or your finances or your health, whatever it is, I don't know necessarily what that is for you. But I know that every single one of us have areas of disappointment in our lives and not just minor inconveniences, we have big, heavy, important areas of disappointment in our lives. For me personally, uh, one of those is uh, I have some chronic ongoing health issues and they affect basically every part of my life. And I have to be able to name the reality of the level of disappointment that's there thinking about the life that I wanted to have and the life that I now have because of those health challenges. I have to be able to name the reality of, oh, this is how this health condition changes me as a person. And I have to be able to just name that disappointment and say, yeah, this is, this is disappointing. This is not the life I would have chosen for myself. But we have to not only name our disappointments, secondly, we process our disappointments in the presence of God. We not only name them, we process them in the presence of God, which is a long way of saying we pray about it a lot. And we submit this, we submit it to God. I'm becoming more and more convinced that underneath almost every discontentment that we experience, underneath almost every area of soul dissatisfaction and soul resentment of the life that we have, underneath every area of discontentment is a disappointment that has not yet been processed in the presence of God. And so what we have to do is we have to process our disappointment in the presence of God because what happens is we experience something that's disappointing. We experience something that makes us sad and we grieve over it. And if we don't grieve those things in the presence of God, what happens is that they grow and they become, they, they fester, they become infected and eventually it turns into discontentment. And so we have to be the kind of people who can not only name the disappointments that we have, but also be the kind of people who can process them in the presence of God. And I know that this is hard, not only in practice, like just doing it, but we live in an American 21st century, modern, fast-paced culture where there's, it's nearly impossible to find time to slow down enough, even just to identify what it is that you're feeling, let alone processing those feelings in the presence of God. We don't have time, we don't have margin in the modern life to be reflective and just ask the question, what am I feeling today? 
And we're not talking about being like ruled by your emotions, okay? We're not talking about being emotion, you know, driven by your emotions as if there's some, you know, like authoritative thing that you just like can't get away from. But if we don't have time to even slow down enough to recognize, like, yeah, I'm disappointed about this. This makes me sad. I'm grieving this for this reason. We certainly don't have time to do that and we don't have time to process it in the presence of God. And if we don't, those things over time will accumulate and you will wake up one day finding yourself a very unhappy, discontent person. And underneath every single one of those discontentments is the lie, God owes me better than this. I deserve better than this. If God really loved me, this wouldn't be my life situation. And that's the reality of underneath every area of discontentment is the belief that my life ought to be different. God owes me better than this. And so we have to process our disappointments in the presence of God. And let me just tell you, uh, look to the book of Psalms if you want to get an example of what it looks like to do this. The psalm that you heard Suzanne read this morning is a wonderful example of the psalmist coming before God, facing all kinds of different difficulties and hurts, and processing those in the presence of God. So look to the Psalms. The Psalms actually give us a template. They give us a pattern for what it looks like for us actually to practice this in real life. And they give us language for the times that we don't feel like we have language. We look to the Psalms. And the Psalms, two-thirds of which are Psalms of, of lament, they give us a pattern for how to bring our disappointments before God in prayer. So we name our disappointments. We process our disappointments in the presence of God. And lastly, what we do is we filter our experiences through what we know to be true. We take every one of our experiences and we consciously, we sometimes you know, have to forcibly do this to ourselves, we have to filter them all through what we know to be true about who God is. Because isn't it true that when we feel that sort of entitlement, when we feel the resentment of God owes me better than this, isn't it true that that is not in line with reality? And so filtering our experiences through what we know to be true about God is a way of grounding ourselves in what's actually true and not letting ourselves be overcome and overtaken and run by our emotions. Not being run by our life circumstances. So we filter everything through what we know to be true about God, who he is, and what he's done for us. So we look to the pages of the Bible and we look at God the Father and we see that he is a generous God who delights to give us every good thing that we need. He's not stingy, he's not mean, he doesn't hold things back from us to punish us. He's not like that. We look to the pages of the Bible and we see that God is so, his heart is so overflowing with love for us and compassion for us that he was willing to absorb the cost of sending his son to suffer and die for us. And so we see a clear picture of who God is. He's a generous father who delights to give us every good thing that we need. We also look to God the Son. We look to the person of Jesus. And we see, as Paul tells us just earlier in the book of Philippians, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we have this picture of Jesus, who is God the Son, who 
is rightly deserving of every moment of praise and adoration and worship for all of eternity. And he chose to leave the riches of heaven. He chose to leave the glory of heaven and take on human flesh and live among us and to experience life in our broken world and to do so and, and he was poor and he was mistreated and he was unjustly executed as a criminal and there is no moment in Jesus' life where he resented that call. There is no moment in Jesus' life where he was looking around saying, you know, boy, I came from the riches of heaven to this. It's kind of a dump compared to what I'm used to. <laughs> Jesus never resented that. Jesus never resented any moment of his call to humble himself and suffer and die in our place. He never said, you know, I don't really have to do this and I don't really want to do this. You know, I, I, I don't deserve to be treated this way. He didn't say that. Jesus willfully submitted himself to a life of humility, a life of not just humility, but being humiliated. He willingly chose to take up that life for us. And so what that means is that our hearts are so filled with love for him because of what he's done that we, like Jesus, are willing to take up a life of humility. We're willing to live in want. We're willing to live, as Paul says, hungry. Because Jesus willingly chose to give up his glory and live a impoverished life. And Jesus could do it without being discontent. And we have the resources through him also to do the same thing and not be discontent. So we see the Father, we see the Son. We look to God the Spirit and we see that we are not alone. We see we are not alone. God delights and desires to live with and among his people. And he's made a way for his Holy Spirit to be and to reside in every single person who is a Christ follower, who's been born again, who has received new life in Christ. He's made a way for himself to be available to us and he's given us the resources. He's given us every resource we need in order to be content in the midst of any and every circumstance. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does is empowers us to live lives that are in line with what is true about who God is and life in our world. So the Holy Spirit enables us, empowers us to actually be people who have contentment. And so we look to who God is and what he's done for us. And we see that in Jesus, God has already given us every single thing that our hearts need to have. He's given us every single thing that our hearts truly need. He hasn't given us all the things we want, that's for sure. But in Jesus, he has already provided us with the forgiveness that our hearts need, the restoration of relationship between us and God that our hearts desperately need. He's provided for us every single thing that our hearts truly need. And so when we look to the Bible and we see who God is and what he's done for us, when we filter our experiences through what we know to be true about who God is, what we know to be true about who we are, and what he's done for us, how could we ever think God owes me better than this? Which is at the heart of discontentment. How could we ever possibly think that? When our, when our minds are, are flooded and, filter, and, and our experiences are filtered through what we know to be true about who God is and what he's done for us, what that does is it pulls back the curtain. 
so we can see the ugly little man, you know, like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, pulling the levers and pushing the buttons. We get to see the ugly little man who's standing there behind the curtain of discontentment. And it looks so foolish. How could God possibly give us more than he's already given us? How is it possible for God to demonstrate in a clearer way that he loves us, that he is for us? When our minds, when, when we filter all of our experiences through who, who we know God to be and what he's done for us, it makes discontentment, it helps us to see it for the foolishness that it is. And we get to look at the character of God, we get to look at what he's done for us. And the goal isn't that we would you know, see discontent and feel really bad about it. Okay, that's not the goal. The goal is that our hearts would be content in who Christ is. And God has made that possibility available for us. Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so there is contentment that's available to all people who are in Christ in every kind of circumstance. And that comes about when we name our disappointments, when we process our disappointments in the presence of God, when we filter our experiences through what we know to be true about who God is. One of the ways that we get to remind ourselves continually about who God is and what he's done for us is we get to come to the communion table. And every week as we come forward, there's a physical, tangible reminder of exactly what it is that God has done for us. God has sent us his son. God has demonstrated that he is utterly and completely for our ultimate good and that he has already given us the one thing that our hearts most desperately need. And so we get to be reminded of that And we also get to be reminded that in every single circumstance, we have him. He is the one that our hearts desire. He is the one that our hearts treasure. And we get to be reminded that Christ is present with us through his spirit. And so the communion table is a beautiful, weekly, regular reminder for us of exactly who God is and what he's done for us. And as we do this over and over and over and over again, it forms us into people who are more and more and more content. And that's God's desire for us is that we would not experience heart-level restlessness, but that we would experience heart-level contentment and satisfaction. And that's available to all of us here today who are in Christ. As we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection.